Coming up on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Boris Johnson has actually been listening in. Boris. Boris. First of all, Ashin, I am delighted uh, to listen to your fantastic voice. And I loved hearing your stories, particularly about Cross McGlen Rangers and how the British Army were of service to you. And Cross McGlen Rangers wouldn't have been as good had it not been for the British Army setting up the barracks and the sniper up on the hill so that all of you boys could say, fuck yous to the British Army. So, wonderful stuff. Huzzah! Thanks, Boris. And Boris is probably right. <laughs> Boris is probably 100% right. Without the Brits, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have the success we had. <laughs> that is the legendary GAA All-Star, Oshin McConville, taking a call from Boris Johnson, of all people, during my chat with Oshin. This is probably the only podcast where those two characters uh, you could find interacting. Uh, to those of you who don't know, Oshin McConville is a legend in GAA football, a two-time All-Star, All-Ireland Final winner, and pretty much a winner of every other award the game has to offer. But I asked him on this podcast not because of all that, but because of his deeply um, affecting and at times troubled personal story. Indeed, it's the troubles itself that form the backdrop to his youth. Armagh, Cross McGlenn, uh, harassment from the British Army, deep mistrust, fear and tension between both communities. The common experience of people of his generation. Maybe the last generation to go through that before this magnificent peace uh, that arrived on the island. And we get into all of that, but even more. McConville was one of the first GAA players to come out openly and talk freely about his addiction to gambling, which he now admits almost cost him his life. All of this and much more right here from this compelling man. Did I love football? I absolutely loved it. As soon as I picked the ball up in my hand, I loved it. And you still love it, even though you don't play? Yeah, I still love it. I love it and I, I, love it and I hate it. I just got to the stage where I thought, fuck yous. Regardless of what you do, you can intimidate us. Like going to training, you know, stopping you, you know, emptying the contents of your bag. You're 17 years of age, chasing you around town. There was a cohort of army that you could mess with, and there was a cohort that you couldn't. And that went by the colour of caps. I was bouncing checks on family members, bouncing checks on every business that I could get into. And I was borrowing money off loan sharks. I mean, we played an Ulster final in Crow Park. And uh, on the way in the Crow Park, I got a message to say, watch myself today, I was going to be got. I had a quick scan when I got onto the field because I genuinely thought there was a sniper in the top deck of the Hogan Standard. That interview with Oshin McConville coming right up. But first, comedy exclusive to the Mario Rosenstock podcast. What are you talking about this week? Well, what are we all talking about? Yeah, it's the heat wave. And you can guarantee that all my podcast friends are talking about it as well, including the great David McWilliams. I just love his analogies. Ready to go, David? All set, John, ready. What are we doing today? Inflation as a heat wave. Ah, genius stuff. Okay, David, let's yep. go. It's powered by Acast. Ooh, ooh. How are you doing there, 
there, it's David here, podcast time, and it's boiling outside, isn't it, John? Yeah, tropic. Roasting. Yeah. And you know what, John? Yeah. It reminds me of inflation. Rise. During a heat wave, mm. air molecules rise like prices. They do. Like the air, the economy begins to overheat. Yeah. Temperatures rise and prices rise. Yeah. What can we do about overheating in general? Oh, Dave? great question. Great yeah. question, yeah. John. Yeah, yeah, great yeah, question, yeah, John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question, yeah. yeah. me. I remember the oh, summer geez. of 76, John Boy. Fuck's sake. Boiling our mebs off, we were. Oh. Oh. Out in the main street of Darkie. Such a prick. Me mates and myself, we'd rob a couple of rally choppers. Stop it. Into town with bollocks. Stop it. And jump into the Grand Canal in our nip. Right, misking the voyage disease and all. This Sitting is... on the sides of the banks of the Grand Canal. This is not you. And you know, neck and flagging the scrumpy jack. Shut up. Fanning ourselves through. We use copies at the racing post. You never read Second, the racing post. Take me up to Monto, oh, Monto, Monto. Take me up to Monto, Lager Hill. This is a living hell. <laughs> It'll never end the torture. Also, over to one of my guilty pleasures. Joanne and Vogue, my therapist, ghosted me. Joanne! Yeah? It's so hot. I'm really worried about this heat wave. No way, Vogie. I love the heat wave. What? Great riding weather. Look, summer of love, girlfriend. But people can't even sleep, Joanne. Exactly, because they're too busy riding. This is going to be the best <laughs> summer ever. Plus, look at all the eye candy on show. All the ride bags <laughs> taking their top off in the park. It's going to be absolutely Oh, amazeable. my God. Your man Leo Varadkar's totally going to take his top off again in the Phoenix. <laughs> love it, Vogie. You know, he's actually quite cute when you come to oh, think about it. Oh, Joanne. You know, if he wasn't on the wrong fucking bus, I totally would. Seriously? Yeah. What about your man, Miho Martin? Jesus, Barfarama, Vogie. It'd be like riding Mr. Burns out of The Simpsons. <laughs> just bones <laughs> flying everywhere. I need a drink even thinking about it. Christ, Jesus, let's get hammered, okay? No way. It's only 11 o'clock in the morning. It's dinner time in Bali, fuckface. Anyway, I sold out 80 nights in Vicker Street. Whoop, whoop. Party on. Yeah. New comedy every week, exclusive to the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Uh, make sure you get in touch with me, Mario Rosenstock at gmail.com. I read them all and I get back to 95% of them. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as well. Right, time to meet this week's special guest, Oshin McConville. So much to this man, football greatness, destructive gambling and recovery, shaped by the troubles, now a pundit and counsellor. Great time to have this chat. Final stages of the All-Ireland Championships. He must be in his element. I kicked off the chat by talking about his, simply... His love for the game. Oshin, thanks a million for doing this, for putting this out during the kind of apex of the football season and everything. And oh, there's been lots happening and the Hawkeye and change of change of the the, 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 the calendar and the bit of bit bit of bit of bit of stuff with Armagh as well and now Galway and Kerry in, in the final. Um, but I'm just wondering, because I was reading a good bit about you and um, I was kind of wondering, I was talking to Connor Nyland last week, the tennis player. And uh, we were talking about his tennis career and I remember, you know, how he got into tennis and was it the love of tennis or was it his family? And it kind of, it was more like he was always going to get into tennis because it was family. And then we ended up talking about, for example, Andre Agassi and how Andre Agassi wrote this book called Open. And people were very surprised because on about the third page, he reveals to us he fucking hated tennis. And, but it, but it emerged that when I was kind of reading about you, that on the contrary, 
you didn't hate football. You absolutely loved football or you do love football. And I kind of want to dig deeper into that and go, what is it you loved or love about football? What brought you into it? And why did you find it such a such a relief, such a, an enjoyable thing to do? Well, the thing that people probably don't realize about the area that I grew up in, like when I was growing up, there really was two things in, in Cross Midland. There was the Troubles uh, and there was Gaelic football. And given the option, uh, I was always going to go for football. Um, <laughs> there was no soccer, there was no rugby, there was no gyms, there was no swimming pool, there was no nothing. There was, there was this mass, as far as I was concerned, there was this massive football pitch in the middle of the town. Why would you not at least go over and have a go at it? And I just remember the minute I picked up a football, look, my family is steeped in, in GEA. As I say, there was nothing else. Um, and once I got into it, started, uh, played with the school, be honest, I was quite, I felt quite comfortable with it. I was good at it. And to be honest, I wasn't good at a lot of things. Academically, I really struggled, um, you know, growing up. Uh, from and, and part of that was because I had no interest in it. You know, I wanted to play football and I wanted to be at everything. Like my family, as I say, you know, we would have went to to matches in different counties at weekends. In fact, my family would think nothing of you know us all jumping in the car and hitting five matches in different counties in one weekend, and that's just the way we lived our life. We went to we we holidayed in Kerry a good bit of the time, and when we holidayed in Kerry, we went to watch Kerry seniors train. That was part of our you know, part of the holiday. We didn't really do the holiday type things that I think all the families were doing. So we were just, it was just, that's just the way it was. I, I didn't really know any different, but, but I, I never felt as if, you know, this is something I have to do or, or, you know, I never felt, you know, uncomfortable in any of us. I felt comfortable with it. And I, I think I was really lucky because Gaelic football is is very much obviously a team sport. I mean, as good as you you are individually, like you know, you're reliant on having a good crew of of boys around you. And we just had an unbelievable crew who just grew up at the same time. And we went started to go to like community games. We won a community games at 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 uh, eleven and a half, twelve. You know, we won a fail at you know thirteen and a half or whatever it was. So. We were, st- we, were, we were successful as well, and I think that helps along the way. But did I love football? I absolutely loved it. As soon as I picked the ball up my hand, I loved it. And do you still love it, even though you don't play? Yeah, I still love it. I love it and I, I, love it and I hate it. I love it and I hate it. And, and, How's that? And, What's the hate part? I just think it's different. I think, um, I think the, the, the enjoyment has been slightly taken away from it. I think preparation is gone through the roof like like I remember coming towards the end of my playing career thinking this is you know this is on the edge now of going too far I mean the preparation we did on 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 opposition was like I remember playing in a in 2008 which was my last year we played we were playing Wexford in a all-earned quarterfinal and we we I think we were three-week lead into that game and we spent two and a half weeks in Wexford and what their strengths were and 
that was enough for me. I, I couldn't, I wouldn't, I couldn't take any more because one thing, first thing was I didn't think Wexford were, were deserving of two and a half weeks analysis. And, <laughs> and yeah, but that's it. And, and yeah, the other part on. is that like, we had a lot of improvement to do at that stage. And I don't think we were, we were, we concentrated yeah. enough on ourselves. We were beaten in that game. And that was me. I was out, the, I was out the gap because, um, because it had, it just had flipped too much. We had spent so much time in a room watching video analysis instead of being on the pitch, and, and that's not why. I, yeah, not why so I you're saying almost you were overcooked. You were saying almost you were overcooked, but also you were implying that the 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 intensity of that preparation is nothing compared to the intensity of the preparation now. And nowadays, like you look at some of the players in the GAA, at particularly at the end of the game, and when they take their tops off. It's just a different ball game entirely, isn't it? I mean, you're looking at lads who are just completely and utterly professionally shredded at this stage. And you know what, Mario? Even even I, I I look at you know club lads who aren't exactly you know pulling up any trees, you know, and are in like unbelievable shape. Um, yeah, and and that's just I think that's just the way. There's just that culture. There's just that there's that gym culture. There's it's a body conscious thing. Um, and I yes. think it's it's like we started that trend. We took a, a guy called Billy Dixon. I don't know if you know who Billy Dixon is, but he he went to um, the England uh, rugby union team um, as far back as probably 90, 95, 96, 97, something like that. And he had changed the jerseys and they had got these things which just look like another layer of skin. And uh, Arma had the same jerseys as as every other county that were baggy jerseys, and all of a sudden we had these player fit, tight fitting jerseys. Whew. Like like that when we heard that that was coming, <laughs> there was some scrambling. I, I don't, you know, way when you're if you're doing an exam, you know, you're um, you're you're cramming the night before. Well, we have spent four or five months cramming, uh, trying to get rid of any excess that there was because we knew that there was a tight-fitting yeah. jersey coming on. And, uh, yeah, we yeah to, tight-fitting wet t-shirt contest. Yeah, we wanted, to, we wanted to, to look the part. So that's part of it as well. You know, things have changed. You know, there's a certain there's a certain expectation of the way you look even when you go onto the pitch. And, and I think also when I see some lads at, 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 at club level who maybe are carrying a little bit, uh, the first thing you think about is, you know, what's he? What's this man? Yeah, he's at nothing, but turns out, you know what, he can play football. So, I think we've gone, we've gone, we've gone too far on the body little, conscious little, thing. Little yeah, bit too far. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of you retired when you were about thirty seven, isn't that right? And one of the things I've noticed about football now is that there's a kind of a choice that's going to have to be made because football has become so professionalized and lads are taking it so seriously and it's it's all encompassing in their lives now as it was to a point in your area that like they're going to have to make a kind of a decision as to I'm going to have to retire when I'm 27 or 28 or 29 because I can play but it's my whole life it's like all my week so I'm going to have to decide am I going to have a career or am I just going to play football yeah, and I think you're seeing that with lads now. I think, you know, the, the high-profile ones are the likes of the Jack McCaffrey's and the Paul Mannions and guys like that who, who have made a decision that there is more to life. Um, now, I think that's that's a, an easier decision if you have five or six All-Era medals in your, in your back pocket. But <laughs> yeah, what I yeah. do think, I genuinely do think that, that guys are making that 
are making that choice. And I think young lads now, um, like I notice a lot more have traveled this year. You know, a lot of the, a lot of the guys who have finished playing in the county football, even some of the club lads, um, have done a lot more traveling this year. I mean, the exodus to America after the after teams have gone out of the championship was was unbelievable. I mean, like mm. some of the championships, like the Boston, New York, Chicago championships. I mean, they're talking about le- about live streaming them. You know, because there's that literally is that much quality out there. Um, so mm. I, I think that that lads are making decisions. Football isn't the be-all and end-all. It's probably, you know, they've probably seen a different side of things. I think, yeah. um, you know, being cooked up for for um, for for two years and, and not being able to travel and things like that, like, it's a natural instinct for young lads. They want to see the world. Um, but I also yeah. think that, you know, as far as... Uh, they're more conscious now, I think, of... of of um of study the more conscious of the fact that you know that this isn't like one of the things i do you know for a living i work for a, a foundation called sport and chance and, and basically deal with professional athletes most of the time and i spend a lot of time with rugby league lads in, in england and one of the things we do with them all the time is transition so transition basically you know these guys aren't on 200 grand a week you know they're gonna have to have a job when they finish. So, you know, what are you walking? Mm-hmm. To, what are you walking towards? Um, you know, what's the plan when you exit? You know, um, stage left. You know, as far as you know, your playing career is concerned, and they are so much more conscious of that than the previous generation. And I think it's the, it's the same thing with uh, with GA lads, except for it's it's different because you know it's an amateur sport, so it's a continuous, mm-hmm. you know, um, walking towards certain things and. And there's a lot of lads who have voted with their feet in the last number of years and said, listen, you know, this is just too much. I just, I, I need to concentrate. I need to have yeah. something for my family. Like I played with lads who were married and, and the more I think about it, married with kids, and the more I think about it, the more I think, how did those gays do that? Because like I have, we, I have three kids now and there's just no way that I could have played inter-county football like- and had a family. Well, I, I could have played inter county exactly. football. I could have played inter county football or had a family, but I couldn't have done both. Yeah, you know. No, no, no. I get it. Um, or you also mentioned earlier on there. You mentioned about it was either it was either the tr- it was you know it was either you know it was the troubles yeah. or it was you know uh, football, and that kind of brings together two little things that I thought was really fascinating reading about you. And it's this story about Gla- Cross McGlen and how Cross McGlen Rangers. And I loved this story you told about the British Army. Which I thought was a fantastic, uh, fantastic uh, story. Can you tell that back to me, please? Well, I suppose, like, when you're growing up in the area that we grew up in, one of the things that I used to hear constantly from the people in my area was, say nothing to nobody. And, like, you know, when I was growing up, I was going, you know, who can you talk to, who can't you talk to, what are the exact rules here? But you would never ask. You'd never ask for pure fear that, you know, you would be made look like an absolute idiot because you're expected to know, as you grow up, you're expected to know everything about, you know, the history of the area and, you know, um, you know the implications of, you know, talking to soldiers and police. And so, like, I would have spent a lot of time making life hard for myself. So, so uh, you know, like, um, you know, ask the question and just not answering it or answering maybe in it. In a, in a cheeky manner, different things like that. And um, I just, I I got to the stage where, you know, I realized that 
you know, you're sort of fighting a, a, a losing battle and like, like we we had we had a, a, a time in 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 our in our lives I suppose where you know the bombings and the shootings were you know were coming becoming more and more regular and uh, you know the, the, the we just lived on the edge of the town and and the windows would go in in the house all the time and you know we just go basically mm. scrape up the glass you know put a board up in the window that would be sitting there and wait for a laser to come and put all the put all the glass back in. And it was like yeah. nobody mentioned that this was like strange or like this was no. wasn't the way that everybody else lived. And to be honest, when we, to, to until I was eleven years of age, and I went to a grammar school in Newry, which is about eighteen mile away from where I live, it was about thirty five minutes on a bus. But until I actually landed in there, I thought everybody lived in the same way. I thought everybody lived under the same conditions, and and uh, I soon realised that that wasn't the case. But as I say, when you're growing up in this in this area, and you know, you it just becomes you, you go into autopilot. But to, to bring that story on, I suppose I would have felt then complete paranoia at 17, 18 years of age that that what was going on in my area was holding us back from being sporting, being uh, successful um, on the sporting front, and we had used that as a crutch. And something to, um, something I suppose to hold us back for many years. And I remember as a collective, and Joe Karen had come in the managers, but as a collective, we said, "Listen, let's stop using this as a crutch. Let's, let's use it as as siege mentality." And like, we it wasn't as you know, you hear teams making up a, a thing around siege mentality. I mean, we had it. We had we had a barrack stuck in the middle of our town. We had a you know, we had the, yes, we had the encouragers on the pitch. We had, you know, we kicked the ball in over the, you know, in over the uh, crossbar, and it might land in the barracks, and that, you know, it would come out with a with a, yeah. with a knife stuck in it or something like that, you know. So, uh, really, yeah. So, wow. like, it, as much as you can joke about it now, I mean, like, it was a, it was a dangerous time, and it was it was a tough time, and the area that we have now, you know, resembles nothing like that. But I, I just got to the stage where I thought, fuck you regardless of what you do you can intimidate us you can you know like going to train and you know stopping you you know emptying the contents of your bag you're 17 years of age chasing you around town you know there was a you know i knew i got to the stage where i knew because you, st- you start to you start to learn a lot and you start to pick up a lot but i knew there was a, a cohort of of army that you could mess with and there was a cohort that you couldn't and that went by the color of our caps and uh, we knew that if the red, if there weren't red hats, if if there weren't red hats, you didn't do any messing. It was you went you went straight down the lane because you could get you know serious repercussions if you didn't. Um, but as I say, you know we had just decided as a group that um, regardless of what intimidation or oppression was happening, you know we were going to start to use it and 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 use it in a in a in a positive manner and try and be successful and and uh, once we once we changed that mindset and that mentality and um, it was actually quite easy to do what we done yeah yeah it's extraordinary isn't it that um a whole generation has grown up and are now in their 20s who have no idea really <clears throat> kind of of the realities that you're talking about you know um do you think do you think day-to-day life apart from the fact that there's obviously far less violence do you think day-to-day relations have changed or do you think people are 
do you think the behavior around this the 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 sectarianism and the relationship between the two tribes has changed from f- since your day um I think there's a co- I think there's still a cohort who are hanging on to to the old uh, grievances, and I think you know you don't have to you don't have to look too far to see that. I mean, this is a pretty um, big week in the north. This is a, a week where traditionally Catholics fled the north and headed down to the to the to the south of the country or headed away. Yeah. Um, and I think in a large parts, a lot of people still do that. Um, and I think, as I say, both sides, on both sides, there's still people who are holding on to to um, to what has gone on in the past. And and I'd be very conscious of saying that, considering the area that I'm from, because I, I do understand the importance of, of the history and I do understand the importance of what has gone on. But... I do think there's a generation now who um, who have so many other things going on that that they're not overly preoccupied with what has gone on in the past, and and I think that's yeah. I think personally speaking that that's a good thing because I think that you, when you're yes. doing that you can you can move on. As I say, like if you're a young um, person growing up now, you have there's a lot of challenges. You know, there, there are a lot of challenges. It's, it's tough now growing up as a youngster, regardless of where you're from. So to heap, you know, what we were going through in on top of that now will be really tough. But as far as this area is concerned, it's a completely different area. It's a completely different atmosphere. And um, the fear is gone. Um, but again, kids being kids, I mean, as far as they're concerned, this is the way it is. This is the way it should be. And, you know, they're not really thinking about what went on in our day, and, and rightly so. And so that makes it a completely different place to grow up. All-Ireland winner, multiple Ulster championships, two, two All-Stars? Yeah. Two All-Stars. But actually, you were one of the first people, and this is what probably drew a lot of attention to you. You were one of the first people, if not the first person, to be so candid, um, so open about what happened to you in regard to gambling. Yeah. Um, which now the thing about this podcast is we've done quite a bit on this because I've kind of I kind of got a real dis- distaste and a dislike for the increase in gambling ads um, that I see, you know, across. And we've done some funny sketches about it and stuff, taking the piss out of it and, and basically satirizing it. Um, but 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 in a kind of a, a hard way, you know, um, so I kind of see it as a kind of a pernicious thing. But. You had all this success and then you came out and talked very, very openly and at length about your gambling. When when did you have your first bet? 14 years of age, um, uh, a, a 50p each way on a, on a horse in a grand ass. <laughs> so, Do you remember the name of the horse? I, I don't. I actually, uh, uh, I say this with complete honesty, I actually don't even know if the horse won or lost because I was so preoccupied with how good I thought the bookies was. Now... People who walk into what was so good about the bookies? Well, people who walk into modern day bookies will tell you, well, it's nice multiple widescreen TVs, there's tea, coffee, nice comfortable seats. <laughs> that wasn't my first experience of a bookies. It was a smoke filled room at the back of a pub. There was a gay right nods up on a on a blackboard if anybody remembers those days, and there was a little small um, portable black and white TV stuck up in the corner of the of the bookies. I just loved the atmosphere. And now I, I take it that the first day I went in was Grand National Day, so 
<clears throat> it was absolutely heaving. But I, I remember I thinking, I want to go back in there. And I went back in about three weeks later. And there was two guys in the in the bookies having similar bets to me, 50p, pound, two pound, whatever it was. And there was another guy in the bookies who was taking wads of money out of his pocket. And I always seen him as a winner. I always thought, you know, all my heroes growing up were sports, were sports people, in particular Gaelic footballers. But when I seen him for the first time, he became my new hero. And I wanted to be like him. And and I set out to try and... Mr. Watt. Yeah, I set out to try and do that. <laughs> Loads of money. And uh, he, as I say, he was... He plays a big part in my story because... 16 and a half years later, I walked into a Gamblers Anonymous meeting in Uri and who was stood there? Only him. And we t- we... We we didn't really we we spoke of course we 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 said hello and different things got there because we wouldn't know each other not not intimately we never had that we never had a major conversation or anything because when you're in the bookies when we were in the bookies like us were in the bookies it was just business but um, when we didn't have a conversation immediately and then about three weeks you know having seen each other at meetings he said to me what are you doing in here I always thought you were a winner. I thought, fuck's sake, you are my hero, you box. And uh, and <laughs> and I suppose that's that sort of gives you an idea about that. For me, sums up gambling because it's the perception thing, like the perception of me around that time. I mean, na- even right nineteen eighty nine, like when I, I when gambling really becoming a major issue for me. I was running around football pitches, playing in front of 50, 60, 70, 80,000 people with me collar up, thinking. And and people thinking that cocky, arrogant, um, you know, has it all going on, you know, able to hold down the job and the girls and the cars and, the, you know, all those sort of things and, and all that fucking stuff that really and truly doesn't really mean that much, has no substance behind it. And, um, and, and really and truly, like, I was absolutely eaten up even at that stage. You know, I was I was being destroyed by it, um, and you know, couldn't think clearly. You know, relationships were breaking down. You know, f- you know, family members were starting to get so. On, even though they didn't know exactly what was going on, because because my gambling, even though it was in bookies, like was was um, was very hidden. Like, and as you say, Mario, now like you're talking about, you know, the the increased access and the, and the increased you know advertising, like where it's saturated. It's fucking. It's like it's. We're at a stage in advertising where, like, I mean, we can't. I don't think we can go any further unless we just, you know, we let them take over a channel or something and just dedicate it completely to to um to gambling advertising. In fact, some of them already look as if that's that's what's happening. But um, so it's much more hidden even now than it, than it was in my day. And what I, the way I used to keep it hidden was I used to move around different towns, different bookies all the time. You know, not, my car wouldn't be seen outside the same bookies and different things like that. So, um, yeah. so yeah, so g- gambling just it was something that yeah, I really struggled with. And the reason why I struggled with it was because was de- I had other issues that I wasn't dealing with. I mean, I had, you know, there was insecurities. And as I say, you know, going around with your, you know, your collar up or, you know, like if I had to get my hands on a pair of white or pink boots at that stage, I would have wore them because I just wanted to deflect away from the person that I was. I didn't want people to know that, 
you know, that I was uh, addicted to gambling. I was a compulsive gambler, a compulsive liar, that, you know, I was controlling, manipulating people that that were around me that, you know, that I couldn't hold down a job or a relationship or friendship or anything like that. So, um, you know, it, it it was something that had a very profound effect on my life for, for 16 years. Yeah. Yeah, 16 years. I was just adding that up. Yeah, 16 years. During that kind of, two questions about this, Oshin. During that kind of, journey of 16 years at what point during that 16 years what it was it at its worst towards the end or um a lot of it a lot of it went hand in hand with how successful we were being on the pitch to be honest because i was trying to replicate Mm -hmm. the buzz uh, i suppose initially and then i was i went through a stage of desperation so i'd say from after we won the all Ireland with our mass so 2002 you know, 2003, 2004, and part of 2005, like I'm going to say part of it, you know, very, very early part of 2005. So probably those couple of years, uh, two, two and a half years were, you know, control, manipulating, you know, lies, deceit, stealing, begging, borrowing. I'm fascinated sometimes by the the practicalities and I think other people are as well so like is it true for example that at one stage you went into like 42,000 debt for Cheltenham or whatever well I actually went into Cheltenham I think I had um I think I had before Cheltenham started or something I had something banked like 66,000 pound or something and by the time Cheltenham was over I was I was in debt for about 15 or 16 grand um I actually had gone through Cheltenham and I hadn't picked up any money for any of the horses that I backed as in you know first second third anything I hadn't I hadn't drawn any money and that's uh and it just sounds like oh you just had a you just had a, like as far I just put it down to like you know I've just had a I just had a bad run because that's what you do when you're gambling you know what do you do to get your hands on the money when you don't have the money what do you do to get your hands anything, on the money anything Mario uh, I mean, there was ones. Give us an example. Well, like, I, I mean, because that is I, pra- these are the practicalities. Okay, well, I give you an I give you an example of of where I was first. Right, so I was in a situation where you know I, I would borrow the money. Okay, so a lot of times I would borrow the money and all that, and that didn't matter what you know, credit card, like you know, credit cards, credit union, banks, friends, family members, acquaintances, all of that, and then you get to the stage where you know that's not enough anymore, like. Like I, after my father died in 1989, I can, I can, I can, I can go back to that, and I can think, you know, the values and and all of these things that we get when we're growing up. I mean, as far as I, when my father died, all of those things went out the window, and I was willing to do anything in order to feed my addiction. And when people think about gambling, a lot of people used to say to me, "You cop on, you know, stop gambling, you know, just stop." But like this wasn't just something that I could stop. I, I I need I need serious help. But people don't see that because it's gambling because there's no substance involved. And like I, I, what I, what was I doing? Uh, look, I was bouncing checks on on uh, I was bouncing checks on family members, bouncing checks on on every business that I could get into and get my hands on. Uh, I was borrowing money off loan sharks. I mean, I went into a, a we played an Ulster final in Crow Park. Um, 2004, and uh, on the way in the Crow Park, I got a message to say, "Watch myself today. I was gonna, I was gonna be got." And 
I had images, and people laugh at this, but I had images of I I had a quick scan when I got onto the field because I genuinely thought there was a sniper in the top deck of the Hogan stand or the Cusick stand. That's how my thinking had gone. Um, I had put together a business plan for a business that I had absolutely no intention of starting, um, and that's how I I um, that's how I had my biggest bet, which was my second last bet. At twenty thousand pound a horse, and that was I got that through um, through a loan. As I say, it was guaranteed by um, a local business, a local businessman who was big time in the football and had no idea what was going on in my life. But again, that was where the manipulation, you know, and uh, and um, yes. and that came into play, and and I was able to manipulate people because of who I was, what it was. You know, and what was happening yes, to me yes, on the pitch course. and different things. Yes. So, so what I was right. I willing to do in the end? I was willing to do anything. I, it didn't matter. I mean, like you know, the fact that you know I stopped when I stopped, or you know, I yes. I uh, got into recovery when I got into recovery. I was lucky because there was only yes. one place I was going to end up, and that well, there was two options for me. I had a I had a lot of suicidal thoughts in the end. You know, I had a plan of how I was going to do it, and um, and it was that, or it was going to be jail. You know, because uh, that's the road I was going down. Because I was willing, as I said, to do anything in order to um, in order to feed that addiction. The story you tell about your mother is is really touching. About that that kind of low point. Can you? Well, I had gone. To, I had got picked up a serious injury. Um, a serious back injury in two thousand and the start of two thousand and three. Looked as if I wasn't going to be able to play football at all in 2003. And um, and luckily enough, uh, the, the physio that I had at the time had sourced a, a guy in England who was doing, um, I suppose, he had done uh, five operations before and it was all on, on Olympic rowers and it all gone on to win Olympic gold medals. So we thought that that was a, an option for us. And... Uh, I'd ended up going to England. So basically I flew into Luton Airport, got a taxi from Luton Airport to Bupa Hospital in Luton, got a thing called a disc probe done. Um a very expensive operation. Um as I say, it was still in its infancy as far as, you know, whether it was successful or not, but it was we felt it was worth a try. Um and I wasn't allowed to fly that night, but I was flying the next morning. I was booked in the they had me booked into a hotel. Um and when I was going back from the hospital in a taxi back to the hotel, on the way past, I seen the bookies, and I thought, you know what, if if I actually feel okay, I'll I'll head back up to the bookies. That'll be a good way to spend the the evening. You know, waste the time because I was there on my own. Um, being a compulsive gambler, I didn't last any time in the hotel. I I, I went straight back up to the bookies. In my pocket, I had five hundred pound and twenty pound notes. I didn't have any bank cards. I didn't have anything else. That's that's all I had. So the first thing I did was go up to the girl behind the counter and I give her twenty pound. I asked her to change it into a tenner and two fivers, um, and I got fifteen quid and I rolled it up into the tiniest little ball you can imagine on the front wee pocket in in the front of my jeans and I stuck it in there. And the reason for that was that that's how much the taxi cost the next morning back to the airport for a half seven flight. Um, so anyhow, st- I started to uh, I started to gamble and I won the loss and I won the loss and I lost and I lost and I lost. So the only money I had left in my pocket was fifteen quid. For the first time ever, gambling started to affect me physically. I started to shake uncontrollably in the book. You just couldn't stop it. And I knew the only way to stop it was to get out through the door. And genuinely, I said to myself, "I'm going to crawl. I'm going to try and crawl." I wasn't sure if my legs would carry. I'm going to crawl out through the door. And uh, 
realistically in my heart of hearts I knew with 15 quid in my pocket I was never getting out of there and I took the 15 quid out and I put 15 quid in a horse and the horse was beaten and again I wasn't sure if the legs would carry me and I, and I, I made this little and I was still shaking and I made this little dart um, to the door and I managed to get out through the door and I stopped shaking and I went back to the hotel and I set my alarm for half three in the morning and uh, I didn't need to set my alarm because I didn't sleep but um, I got up and I walked eight and a half mile from the hotel to the airport because I, no, I had no money for a taxi and that was the first time when, when I started to have those suicidal thoughts and I got back to the house um, I had, basically I got on the plane and I got off it and I got a lift home and when I got to the house, I hadn't eaten in two and a half days almost because I had no money for food or anything after the operation. Um, and I got to the house and my mum had one of those dinners for me, one of the ones that fall off the side of the plate because she thinks I hadn't eaten in, in however long. But anyway, I started eating and, and I, I, started to, I started to beg with myself at the, sitting at the table just to, to say to her, you know, exactly what was going on and just ask for help because it was... I had enough. I was fed. I was. I couldn't take anymore. And and my overriding emotion that time was embarrassment. And it was a strange emotion I thought because nobody else knew. You know what I mean? I was there on my own, so I thought it was a really strange emotion. But anyway, um, so I I um I I I I, I tried to bring myself to 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 saying to my mom, you know, you know, uh, this is what's going on in my life. Uh, but I, as far as I was concerned, coming home, for play, you know, traveling home those three or four hours, you know, all I kept saying to myself was, that's it. Never again. We will never find ourselves. When I say we, I mean me, will never find ourselves in this situation again. That's what I kept saying all the time. And my mum was finished up her dinner and she left the room. And I wasn't finished mine or anything, but she left the room. And when she left the room, I thought it was a good idea to go and take every penny she had out of her bag to take you know, anything that was worth anything in that kitchen. And about 20 minutes later, I was standing in the bookies in the dock um, gambling again. And for me, that was a low point because I, I had convinced myself that that was it. I had convinced myself that this, you know, um, I'd never be in that situation again. And I suppose an hour later, I was, in, I was in a situation, but it was even worse because, you know, I was after doing what I was doing. And you know what? I suppose even my mum was in denial because she knew that that money was gone, but she never confronted me about it because she didn't want to believe it, you know? Um, and, you know, that was the sort of thing. They were the sort of things, like there was lots of false dawns as I went on and there was lots of times where I told myself different things, but all of my talk was self-talk. I wasn't sharing it with anybody else because I was embarrassed and ashamed um, of who I'd become. And I wasn't going to share that with anybody because I felt, um, as I say, just embarrassed and ashamed. And I felt that, you know, I felt at one stage there was no way out. There was no way out because how was I going to tell people the person that i become? How was I going to do that? And it seemed like a better idea to, to end it all. Do you know what I mean? And that's that was the crazy thinking. Uh, at that time and and um i suppose i just people always say about you know you you're great to have you know open up but i had no choice 
And and the other thing about having no mm. choices, I'm one of the lucky ones, you know, because there's people mm. like people don't realize this, but like gambling is the highest rate of suicide, and the reason why is the highest rate of suicide is because like people are are losing their homes and you know their families. It's and, undetected in a way. Yeah, and and you get the, like, and it, just the last point in that, like when people ask for help, it's, with gambling, it's always a crisis point. You know, with alcohol, sometimes, you know, you mm. see somebody and you can make a bit of an intervention. But, yeah, with, 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 with gambling, a lot of the time, you know, you don't see it sneaking up on you. Mm. That's extraordinary. And, and I must say that, like, I mean, I've heard stories in the past and we've all heard stories. But, the, well, the way you tell it is, is particularly that that uh, that walk to the airport at half three in the morning. That's that's that spells it all out. Um, I was going to ask you just a kind of a related question. And it was like... um. Can you remember, like, the feelings you had when you won and the feelings you had when you lost big? Because I have a follow-on from this, but did you, for example, did you feel uh, elated when you won? Did you feel devastated when you lost? Or did you feel elated when you lost? Um, A couple of stages. First of all, I started gambling because I was curious uh, and I felt as if this so- looks like something that could be quite easy, and I wanted to think quite quite easy. I liked instant gratification in 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 life. I wanted to, I wanted to short when I played football. I wanted to short circuit everything to win. You know, um, I got obsessed with winning. I didn't want like it, the yeah. the process. You know, when people talk about the process, I mean that that blows my mind sometimes because. I didn't want to have anything to do with the process. Now that thing obviously has had changed as as my as my football had gone on. But as far as gambling was concerned, I mean, I get a real buzz out of winning initially. Then you know, a real buzz out of as you say, winning and losing, and then a buzz out of putting on the bet. But for the last five years of my of my gambling, there was no buzz at all. I just it was just something I felt I had to do, and uh, yeah, it was okay. just something that was it had become habit. And I felt every yeah. morning when I woke up that that's what I had to do. I had to go, I had to source the money, and I had to gamble, because um, that's what my that's that's what I was that's what I was telling myself all the time. Um, and I, that's a very very strange place to be in whenever it's yeah. doing nothing for you. My second last bet was twenty thousand okay. pound a horse, and I stood and I watched the race, and I literally had zero emotion, zero emotion. Yeah, you know, I did, at the end of you the day, like I wanted you're hollowed out. Yeah, I wanted to win, but didn't really, didn't really make any difference because it was just going to in my heart of hearts, I knew it was going to mean the same thing. Yeah, but maybe you were also eventuating your the rock yeah, bottom thing. Yeah, you you were just heading towards rock bottom, and you were doing it like an automaton. There's a lot of self destruction in what I was doing, and and you know what, the people I meet, you know, day in day out now, like I just. Like you're trying to map it out for somebody to say like you're just everything's going so well and you're destructing everything by just by by one action, you know. Yeah. Did you lose friends for life? Uh, yeah. Uh, That's hard, isn't it? Well, I suppose like I tried to make amends to everybody because that was I I was um, I did the twelve step program and uh, mm. part of that is to make amends to the people that you fought along. That's the way. right. Um. I had to make fi- financial amends, which thankfully, with the help of my family, I was able to do, because um, that was pre- uh, preying on my mind in a big way. 
and then there was people that had hurt um, I suppose in different ways and and they're the people who were never you know who like 99% of the people that I made a, I tried to make amends they accepted it but I understood that there was people that along the way that I had hurt uh, in a way that you know wasn't acceptable and that and I could completely understand where there was but it takes a bit of it, it, it takes it takes you as an individual a little bit of time to to make peace with that. I mean, it took me quite a while to mm. make peace with that because, you know, you try and you try and you try and um, and you can't, you, you can't accept it because as far as you're concerned, you've done the crime, but you've also done the time. And initially there wasn't that understanding. And even with my family, you know, I wanted that trust back immediately. And, like, it took a lot of years you know, in order to win that back. And then I had to realize, like, I'm after putting these people through through this stuff for for, um, for 16 years. You know, compulsive gamblers are compulsive liars. Like, I'd lied to them for 16 years. And, and I wanted, I wanted just because I'd gone away and I'd done treatment, I, I wanted them to go, oh, Jesus, everything's great. I should, you know, welcome back into the fold. The prodigal son has returned, all that sort of stuff. But... That was never going to be the case, and 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 I had to accept that along the way. Except ex- the same thing as accepting um, that not everybody wanted amends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, God Almighty. I mean, I know a guy who is who's an alcoholic, and he's gone through the twelve steps, and he's many, many years, like thirty five years of 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 drink or whatever, forty years nearly. Uh, and he told me about making amends part, and he said that he went to one very, very special friend and tried to make amends. And the friend just told him, never, fuck off. I never want to see you again. And, you know, my friend, whatever, had to say, yeah, that's fine. That's okay. You know what I mean? That's, that's. It is. And, and as much as you say to yourself, you know, that's fine. It's not fine. It's not fine for, for, for a while. It's, there's a lot of rec- personal reconciliation to be done before you actually make peace with that. And that only comes with experience and walking the steps and living a proper life and all those sort of things. Yeah. Complete change of subject. GAA punditry. Brawley described RTE as a morgue recently. <laughs> Response? Uh, RTE is the same RTE that I stepped into and have stepped in and out of, I suppose, over the last number of years. I think it's an individual thing. I think it's up to you if you want to, like, I can go down any road I want to go down when I'm on, when I'm on, uh, when I'm doing punditry with RTE. It's no different to BBC. And, and, uh, you know, obviously Joe has an axe to grind. So, like, I mean, I take everything that Joe says with with a pinch of salt. So uh, I, I actually, myself and Joe had a bit of a, a standoff probably uh, a couple of months ago we did a podcast with BBC and, and I challenged a little bit of his punditry th- and he challenged a little bit of mine so um but it's a, it's a very I think it's very much an individual thing um I tried to bring um I tried to bring raw analysis but I also try and try and realize that there's there's people who are, who want to be uh <laughs> There's people who want to be entertained as well, so I try to bring a mix of that. But I'm probably not. Let's face it, I'm probably not a full out entertainer, and I think uh, my accent isn't doesn't doesn't 
doesn't help in that regard. But uh, as I say, I've never found RT. I've never nobody's ever told me what to say in RT. Nobody's ever told me, you know, that that you know what the meaner I have to, you know, mean like you get an indicator, you know, of of the the stuff you're walking on. You know, you get an indicator of maybe how to dress for for that day, whether it's whether we're going, you know, that everybody's uniform, that you're going with a shirt or a tie or whatever. But other than that, like I've never yeah. had had any um, major direction as far as the things I could say and the things I couldn't, you know. And Camille, apart from all your work as uh, you know counselor and all that, and your amazing appearances on MasterChef, which you transformed yourself into a gourmet cordon bleu cook from not being able to boil an egg. And uh, you've released a juice as well, is that right? Yeah, we have, myself and another guy, we have a, a juice that's called Fuller Juice. So we were up all night thinking of that <laughs> name, weren't we? Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's actually going really well for us. So we, we were, uh, so is there anybody listening who wants to list it in the south? Um, we are already listed in the north and uh, we're looking for more avenues. Great. Thanks for that, Mario. Thanks for the plug. Appreciate oh, it. you're welcome. Sure, we'll always give you the plug here, <laughs> Doshi. No problem at all. And I think your voice is fantastic, by the way. There's too many, there's too many showboaters out there. We need, we need the juxtapositions that, the counterpoint to that. Now, you know, on this podcast, we have certain people who are listening in live to the podcast, uh, Oshin, don't you? No, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. There are some characters listening in, very famous people who love my podcast. Um, so they're listening in. So will you say hello to a couple of them, will well, you? Boris Johnson has actually been listening in, would you believe? Will you say hello to Boris? Hey, Boris. What's happening? First of all, Oshin... I am delighted uh, to listen to your fantastic voice. You know, it is not a drone at all. It is a wonderful voice. You are Mr. Entertainer, and I loved hearing your stories, particularly about Cross McGlen Rangers and how the British Army were of service to you, and Cross McGlen Rangers wouldn't have been as good had it not been for the British Army setting up the barracks and the sniper up on the hill so that all of you boys could say, fuck yous, to the British Army! So, wonderful stuff. Huzzah! Ah, fantastic. Chumbawamba. I get knocked down, but I get up again. Huzzah for Cross McGlen Rangers. Well done, Ashin. Thank you. Jesus. Any comment on that, Ashin? Thanks, Boris. <coughs> and Boris is probably right. <laughs> Boris is probably 100% right. Without the Brits, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have the success we had. <laughs> Listen, Paul Kimmage is on the line. Say hello to him. Well, Paul, who sings? Yeah. How are you doing, Oshin? I was just listening to your podcast there. Uh, I see you released a juice called Full of Juice. Is that a hint? <laughs> Is there something you need to tell us about the GAA? I'm doing an article at the moment for the Sunday Indo. <clears throat> I want to hear more about Full of Juice. It's, it's all, What's going on? No, it's, 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 all very, um, it's all very innocent, Paul. It really is. Yeah, right. Yeah, sure. Half of our ma are going around with this stuff inside them. Full of juice. Absolutely ketoed up to the max. Ketamine, full of juice. It's full of it, isn't it, Oji? Oh, it is. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Paul. God, fair enough. <laughs> Pat Spillane is on the line, Oshin. Pat's leaving us. The end of the year. Oh, yeah, say hello to Pat. Well, Pat, those things, looking forward to retirement. Well, Oshin, I am looking forward to retirement, but I just wanted to ask you one great question now. Who is the greatest footballer you have ever seen? Hello? <laughs> Who is the greatest footballer you have ever seen? I want the top two footballers you've ever seen in your life. Who's the greatest footballer I've ever seen and why are you, Pat? Hello? <laughs> greatest footballer you've ever seen? 
Top two. Pat's Blanche. Give him your top two. Two, two, two. You're not serious, eh? Um, the the the, the greatest that I have seen has been Canavan. And then there has to be yeah. one from that era. So Spillane or, or, or Jack O'Shea. Actually, going to go Jack O'Shea. Jack O'Shea. Just to piss Spillane off, but I'll go Jack O'Shea and Peter Canavan. I always, this is this sums up the GAA for me, um, Oshin. Sometimes I'm driving down the end. Well, once I was driving down the M50 and we were in the slow lane. And the fast lane was to our left. And then this van went by. And it was just Jack O'Shea electrical repairs. And in the front of the car was Jack O'Shea. <laughs> and you're just there. And I was just like Jack O'Shea speeding, <laughs> speeding past me. And he's just with his wrench in his hand and his spanner. And you're just there. That is the fucking man. GAA. It's just, it is, it's just brilliant. It's just brilliant. An absolute total legend. Um, and a bit like yourself, Oshin. Um, listen, I want to thank you so much for doing the podcast. Um, I really enjoyed it. Oh, you're very welcome. I really enjoyed it. And of course, Full of Juice is out there. And sorry if Paul Kimmage <laughs> took up the wrong end of the stick. Um, there's absolutely no illegal substances or anabolic steroids in this juice. <laughs> Not that I know of anyway. Um, so listen, thanks a million. And um, I, I must say, I really, really enjoyed your... I, I mean, I know you're you're an expert at it now, the, the candor and everything. And But Jesus, it's still... It really it really registers home and... and I'm sure there may be some people listening out there who, you know, you never know. It might have had a very positive effect on. Yeah, no, I I hope so. And and like, you know, the first thing the the first thing I had to do was I had to share it with somebody else. And when you share it with somebody else, then there's there's a possibility of of good things happening. And that's exactly what has happened to me for the last 15 years is good things. I'm delighted to hear it. I'm delighted that you shared your story. Thanks a million. Thanks, Mario. And that was a great chat. And my thanks to Oshin McConville for being so candid uh, and sharing so much um, in that really personal chat with me. Thank you, Oshin. Um, don't forget his uh, juice. It's fun. Even if Paul Kemmage doesn't like it, full of juice. It sounds great to me. Listen, great podcast coming up next week. Two very interesting comedians, uh, ladies called the Dirt Birds. They have sold out shows in the Olympia. Um, they've been selling them out and for a reason. Find out why when you join me next week. Take care. Take it handy. See you same time, same place.